SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Manukora Honey. Merriam-Webster defines honey as a sweet, viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees. And that's all good and fine, but old Miriam and Webster (laughs) used some words that I don't know and didn't really hit the mark when it comes to talking about Manukora honey. First off, Manukora isn't just sweet and viscid. It's got a rich, complex taste and a creamy, melt-in-your-mouth texture that you won't find in your average, everyday grocery store honey. And nectar of flowers doesn't cut it when you're talking about the nectar of the Manuka tea tree in New Zealand. The only nectar these bees feed on in the production of Manukora honey. In conclusion, Manukora ain't just your average boring dictionary defined honey. It's special honey. I know this firsthand. Uh, they sent us a jar, a squeeze bottle, and some honey sticks. And we've been sharing them around the office of their MGO 850 Plus, their best selling honey. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not <laughs> what you're thinking of when you think of honey. Look, have you ever think to yourself, if like, a company made grapes for the first time, we'd go nuts. It's, I feel like honey is this way, where I'm like, if anybody like made this up, we'd be going out of our minds. But this is like if honey happened again. Did you like the honey, Sari? So I moved into a new place where there's no insulation in the walls. And so uh, I've been drinking a lot of tea. And mm-hmm. sometimes that tea needs a little bit of honey. And I initially poured in this honey thinking it was going to be grocery store honey. And then I was like, that's different. And now it's a little uh, breakfast treat. It's a great breakfast treat because it's 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 a little like it's for toast. I could put like this on my butter toast and I'm like, oh, I'm having an experience. So Merriam-Webster also defines ultimate as the best or most extreme of its kind. Now that one fits Manukora to a T. Indulge in the best or most extreme sweet viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees from Manukora. If you head to manukora.com slash tangents, you can get $25 off their starter kit, which comes with the MG850 Plus Manuka Honey, a free travel pack of honey sticks, a free wooden spoon, and also a free guidebook. That's M-A-N-U-K-O-R-A dot com slash tangents to get $25 off your starter kit. Welcome to SciShow Tangents, the lightly competitive knowledge showcase starring some of the geniuses that make the YouTube series SciShow happen this week. As always, I am joined by Stefan Chin. Hello. How are you? Ah, doing all right. That's great. (laughs) What's your tagline? Hot saucy. Sam Schultz is also here. Hello. What's your tagline? I'm wearing shoes and I don't like it. (laughs) Yeah, it's getting warm now. Yeah, I can't just go around barefoot. Uh, I have to wear shoes. That's well, yeah, that's the rules. Yeah. I stepped uh, on a fish hook in my apartment the uh, other day that I didn't put there. What the heck? Who put it there? I don't know. Whoever lived there Somebody's beforehand, maybe. I vacuumed fishing. though, but it impaled right in my foot. Oh no, uh, and they got that fish hook thing on it. Yeah. Did somebody turn it really in? I don't know. Maybe or send a message. Uh-huh. Like oh. sleep with the fishes. <laughs> uh, I hate it. I have a bad ghost that I live with. Sari Riley is also here. <laughs> yeah, hello. With news from the bad ghost. Uh <laughs> Other than that, you're doing okay? Yeah. What's your tagline? Garbage, but make it fashion. Yeah, that's how I feel about towels. And I'm Hank Green. (laughs) Oh, we can't talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm absolutely overjoyed to be with all of you today to make SciShow Tangents. And my tagline is, 
my baby went poop in the potty. I saw oh, that on Twitter. Grats. Yeah. So every week here on SciShow Tangents, we get together with the goal to amaze and one-up and delight each other with science facts. We play for glory, and we play to make each other happy, and we also play for the win for Hank wow. Bucks. Mm-hmm. Especially now that we're keeping score week to week. Um, and One of us at least is playing to win. Yeah. I'm playing. I don't know. I don't know. Last, last episode when Sari lost, I felt like there was a flash of Ooh. rage. No. Yeah. I just don't want to be last. I've been last in every single score that we've done, which yes. I guess is only the past couple of weeks. You aren't last yeah. anymore, though. You're I'm third. solidly last, oh, okay. which means that I'm now going to change my goal. I'm playing to lose, which means I'm doing very well. Okay. <laughs> well, that's one way to handle it. So we do everything we can to stay on topic here at Tangents, but if you go on a tangent, as we might do, talking about fish hooks and such, then we'll dock you a Hank buck if we don't like it. But we all have to agree that that is the course of action we want to take. Now, as always, we're going to introduce this week's topic with the traditional science poem. I have to sing again. Okay, You have to sing? Ooh. I do, I have to. Okay. Okay, so this science poem is to the yourself. tune of La Donna Immobile? I don't know how to say it. You don't even know what the song is called. Or the Italian chef song. Obviously, everybody knows the Italian chef song. Yeah, I see what's happening. You ready? Uh Oh, don't nobody look at me. When you are cooking food, you are a science dude. As you fry up the steak, denatured proteins are what you make. Cheeses are milk proteins coagulated in big machines. Dough rises from gases, from tiny yeast asses. All this food is made from both art and science, and it's all kind of gross if you think about it too much. (laughs) (laughs) Our topic is cooking. So you did the Italian chef song. Do you know anything about that song? Does anybody, is that actually about a cook, about cooking? No. No. It's (laughs) about, uh, it's from a play about like this Duke, and it's apparently a very sad play. But that's all I know about it. Pavarotti was in the movie version. And he sings it very jauntily, but I think something bad happens to him later. (laughs) Uh, I just want to, like, do a shout out to Yeast. Don't have butts. I know, but it was too funny. (laughs) I thought of it in the shower today and I couldn't not. (laughs) (laughs) Just because you fart doesn't mean you have a butt. Sometimes you just fart out your membrane. Wait, Uh, is that still a fart? Can we no. define farts? <laughs> Before we define cooking, let's define farts. Yeah, what is it? you? I feel like you have a stronger opinion about farts. Than I, I think do. well, so I think that it it has to not be a fart because if if a yeast expelling gas through its cell membrane is a fart, then so is like any gas being expelled from mm. any part of anybody. Mm. Then a burp would be a fart. Then talking would be a fart. Ooh. Uh, I'm on. Like I'm on board. Yeah. Talking <laughs> is a fart. Yeah. Then maybe some people will talk less. Not me. I love farting. <laughs> <laughs> so what's cooking, Sari? It's like a very vague, broad definition. It seems like any sort of preparing food for consumption. Yeah. But just, usually with heat uh-huh. is what we consider cooking. I feel like cooking. you gotta cook with heat. You can't cook a salad. Can't cook a Ooh. salad. Yeah. Can you cook sushi? You can, you can, but, yeah. but if uncooked. it's not, then it's not cooked. What's denatured mean? Oh, uh, so proteins have shapes mm-hmm. that they that they like in order to function. Mm-hmm. They need to be in that particular shape. Okay, uh, denaturing a protein is basically unshaping it, applying oh. enough heat that like all the energy comes into it and like its shape gets unshaped. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you like cook an egg, uh-huh. that's denaturing the proteins, and okay. so then they unfold. 
stop being egg proteins and then kind of like glom together in different ways. And that's when the white gets all milky. Well, Sari this week is going to be doing... It's when one of our panelists prepares three science facts for our education and enjoyment, but only one of those facts is real. And the rest of us have to try and guess which is the real fact. If we get it right, we get a Hank Buck. If we don't, Sarah gets the Hank Buck. I'm very excited to hear what you have prepared for us. In the 16th century in Europe, there was a breed of dog that was essential to every large kitchen because it was particularly good at helping humans with one task. Number one, hunting adult male red deer. Besides mm-hmm. the meat, cooks specifically needed their ground-up antlers, known as hartshorn salt or ammonium chloride, oh. as a leavening agent to help light, crispy baked goods rise because baking powder wasn't used yet. Number okay. two. So this so the, this are all this one dog facts. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. So like there's a breed of dog specifically for one of these three things. I feel like his name must be a clue or else we would know this dog. Mm. Yeah, what's name. the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't give it to Is you. Is it still a thing? No, it's extinct now. Oh, it's an extinct Ooh. breed of dog. Yeah, okay. so it was specifically good for these large European kitchens. Now we don't need it. Okay. Number two, digging into peat bogs to store food and find buried food. Because peat bogs are relatively cold and oxygen poor, people used to use them as a sort of fridge before and after cooking. And so the dog was there to <laughs> b- dig out and hide the thing. Yeah, and also find it afterward, like remember okay. a location or to sniff it out. Nowadays, we've found some of this bog butter. It's a waxy substance <gasps> in wooden containers, sometimes oh. dairy-based and sometimes meat-based. Or number three, running on a wheel in the kitchen to provide mechanical energy. Because when cooks were roasting meat over a fire, they would often skewer it on a spit and need to keep that spit turning for hours and hours and hours so that the meat would roast mm. evenly. And you don't want to ha- you don't want to mm. pay like a child to do that work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're do you have to pay them to do other work? What? Yeah. You think they're or paying don't the, pay children? the children? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, they're paying it in spit meat. So there is a kitchen dog, and it's good for one of three things: hunting deer for getting a leavening agent, was an ammonium chloride. Mm-hmm. N- number two, digging into peat bogs and hiding weird bog butter packages or three uh, running on a wheel to turn a spit. Tell me more about bog butter. Oh, I love bog butter. (laughs) (laughs) It is usually found in European bogs Mm -hmm. where we assume that people in the past lost track of where they put it. But they're in big, like, wooden storage containers, and it's just, like, this waxy substance. I think partially it's actually butter, like, made from dairy that people use because butter Uh was a precious, like, fairly precious and fairily valuable material Mm -hmm. because it could be used in cooking. It could also be used as a substance for trade. But there's also some animal-based waxy bog butter, and I think that's just due to, like, the decomposition Mm. of meats over a really long time. It becomes Uh, this, like, waxy, fatty substance. Um, I think human corpses also turn into, like, waxish stuff. I've heard of that. Lovely. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a real thing at the very least, whether or not a a Mm. dog was important for digging it up and not doing its its job because apparently some of it got lost. Mm -hmm. And then we've got baking powder deer. And the dogs were there for hunting those. Yeah, because they it was called hartshorn salt or ammonium chloride, and it works mm. as a leavening agent. And mm-hmm. so, But for, then you also get the deer, I imagine. Yeah, you get the meat of the deer also. So okay. you can make a whole meal with bread and meat and stuff. So what do you guys think? I mean, dogs helping with hunting is still a thing, I feel like, that happens. Sure, sure. So that one makes sense to me. Hamster wheel, I don't know. Hamsters run on wheels. <laughs> but... <laughs> 
Do dogs run on wheels? You just got to put the put the rotating meat in front of the dog, and then it'll walk toward it. How would you train the dog to not go eat the meat? Maybe it's like caged up in the wheel. Like it can't get out of the wheel. Why would I walk? I just lay down. You just stand there. Well, you're a good boy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to say more. I think I know which one it is. All right. Well, then you tell me which one it is. I'm going with the dog running on the wheel one. Wheel dog. Yes. I think I've seen a medieval image of of said dog. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) All right. I'm going to go with wheel dog. I also think I know what it is. And I'm also going to go with wheel dog. We're all going with (laughs) wheel dog. I'm so bad at this game. (laughs) Wheel dog. Tell me about the wheel dog, Sari. Yeah, the wheel dog. uh, It's called a turnspit, a kitchen dog, a cooking dog, or a vernipatter, cur. I couldn't find a pronunciation for that, but it's something Latin for wheel running or something like that. (laughs) Uh They were these like small, stout dogs. They look kind of like a dachshund to me, Mm -hmm. Um, but they were bred mostly for poor people in kitchens. They got their tails cut off, which is why they were they were curtailed, which is where the cur came from. Mm. And they were hoisted up into a wheel on the wall, like next to the fireplace, far (laughs) enough from the heat so they wouldn't like pass out from the heat. And so they were kind of trapped there. Um, <laughs> so they weren't caged up there they, just too high to get down yeah, yeah they had to be like small enough that you could lift them up there yeah they were very small and stout and then they just like they ran and they the spit turned sometimes they would throw in a hot coal behind it to make no. it run which is really sad um, but yeah they were just like seen as kitchen utensils and they worked six days a week, I think, to like roast meat. And then on Sundays, they would be brought to church to warm their owner's feet. So like everybody had one of these dogs? Most kitchens did, yeah, oh. in the 16th century. Before the dogs, apparently, it was a little boy. Uh, oh, the, this article described it as the lowliest person in the kitchen, which oh. was often a small boy who would stand behind a bale of wet hay for protection from the heat oh. and then turn the iron spit for hours and hours, which sounds... Absolutely miserable. Yeah. Um, then boys turned into dogs, and then dogs turned into <laughs> machines called clock jacks by like 1850 and, mm. or 1900 when we finally, I don't know, came up with a mechanical way to do this mm-hmm. that didn't involve a living being. And then we were like, that dog isn't cute enough. We're not going to keep it around. Mm-hmm. I think they were selectively bred to be really stout. So they also had weird genetic mutations. Mm-hmm in there too where they, they had to be heavy enough to like push this wheel around yeah, yeah they weren't super healthy in the same <laughs> way that like pugs are not right, the healthiest yeah. and there were some ethic I feel like there were ethical issues where once people started caring about animals as pets then they also were like what are you doing with this dog making it run on a wheel for hours and hours and hours and then we extincted their entire <laughs> yeah. breed yeah so bog butter is real I know bog butter is bog real bog butter is real I love bog butter so did they forget where their butter was and they didn't have a dog to help them so I was yeah on. I think they did forget a lot where they put stuff oh boy uh, and just left it down there in the peat <laughs> bogs and now people who are digging out peat are like what is this container that's 150 pounds I don't know uh, they pull it out and then there's butter inside. And then they actually did use uh, deer antlers as ammonium chloride before baking powder was a thing. I've heard about this recently and I heard it makes really stinky bread. Because of the ammonia yeah. in it? Yeah. So it that was used mostly like red deer, as far as I know, live in around Germany. Mm-hmm. And so Hirschhornsalz is what it was called as a leavener. And so they would just like use the antlers. But it, you typically used it to bake like thin things or things that you wanted to rise, but then dried out like mm-hmm. crackers or pa- like mm. drier pastries mm-hmm. because 
the ammonia is so potent that and if you bad had smelling. fresh, it oh. would be not good. Yeah, it'd probably be bad. Sari, great facts. Sorry <laughs> that we completely denied you because apparently we all knew somewhere deep in our heads about these funny dogs. Uh, but you will have many more opportunities to win points in other episodes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and next, it's time for the fact off where you'll get to award a point. Uh, but first, a word from our sponsors. Slasher Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money, a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. I said it before, and I'll say it again. It's a subscription-based world out there. Video games, art-making programs, food delivery services. These things, they all have dang subscription services to subscribe to. And I don't want to cast aspersions? Dispersions? Aspersions. One of those. But... It does seem like part of the subscription uh, business model is to get you to subscribe to something and then hope that you lose track of everything you subscribe to and just keep forking out 10 bucks a month until the sun mm-hmm. burns out. And you know yeah. what? That's actually a pretty good idea on their part, but it's not such a good idea for your wallet. Your money is like a bean. <laughs> <laughs> You want to plant it in fertile soil. You don't want people carving off pieces of your bean all the time. Yeah, that yeah. bean's not going to grow if, there, if there's, there's a constant drain on the on bean. The bean. Yeah. That <laughs> is where Rocket Money comes in. With Rocket Money, you can see all your subscriptions in one place, decide what you do and don't want, and cancel things with just a tap. Rocket Money will even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money. And beyond I mean, beans and beyond subscription canceling <laughs> rocket money helps you build budgets, track your spending and more. There's all kinds of ways to take care of those beans. So they grow into a nice big bean plant. It has over 5 million users and ha- it helps save members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. What would you do with 720 beans? I'd buy more beans. <laughs> <laughs> Different kind of bean, I guess. A cheaper, more of a cheaper type of bean. You buy cheaper beans with your expensive beans. (laughs) Yeah, until I had an infinite amount of the cheapest bean you could possibly have. (laughs) Subscription (laughs) companies hate this one simple trick because you figured out their plot. And now you can use that money for beans instead. Stop wasting (laughs) money on things you don't use and start using money on things like beans. Cancel your (laughs) unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. Now get ready for the fact off. Two of our panelists have brought science facts to present to the others in an attempt to blow their minds. And the presentees each have a Hank Buck to award to the fact they like the most. It's me versus Stefan. And we're going to decide who goes first by, of course, who was the most recent person to actually cook a thing. What did you cook recently, Stefan? Uh, on Saturday? Oh, I win. I made <laughs> veggie pasta. Does it count if I just cooked an egg? 
Cause that you call that cooking that's an cooking. egg, yeah. yeah. Even yeah. though I didn't like, it was like butter in an egg, but still, it's cooking. You put heat there, and I you changed an egg, and then you ate it. Yeah, I changed an egg just this morning mm. for my son. So I guess I go first, which is why I'm going to talk to you about the most common ingredient in cooking. Actually, second Ooh. most common, depending on how you count. What do you think the most common ingredient Wawa. in cooking is? Water is actually the first most common ingredient in cooking. Okay, mm. but the second one. Oh. Universally, pretty much. Potato. No. Oil? Closer with oil in that it's not what you would think of as food. Salt? Salt is the salt. correct yeah, okay. answer. Oh. Every recipe yeah. has salt in it. Like, you might be making cookies, bread, pasta, anything. You've, you are including salt in this, uh, which is why we have... In the U.S. and in lots of other places in the world, used salt as a way to make public health better by putting iodine in it. Mm-hmm. Why, my panel of geniuses, do we put iodine uh, in salt? Ah, oh, shit. Because of deficiencies. Because of iron. Because of iodine deficiencies, yeah. which mm-hmm. cause anybody? Ooh, uh, is it called goiter? Goiters is the correct wow. answer. How do you know so much? <laughs> I'm a genius. Didn't you <laughs> yeah, hear? <really? laughs> So a goiter is an enlargement of your thyroid gland, and it happens because your thyroid produces a hormone that is called thyroxin, which requires iodine to be produced. And if you don't have enough, uh, your thyroid gets all freaked out and it tries to work really hard to produce more thyroxin from less and less iodine. So that is the reason why we are all told that we have iodized salt. It turns out that there's a couple of uh, complexities to this. One, for much of America, you don't need iodized salt because you get iodine from the food that you eat normally. This is especially true Mm. if you live close to the coasts or if you live somewhere that was fairly recently covered in ocean. Mm. But there is what public health experts called the goiter belt, which is a very large area in the U.S., that is completely iodine depleted in the soil. So when you grow a plant there, there's no iodine in the plant. We, here in Missoula, Montana, are in the goiter belt. Oh. And so we do need iodized salt for sure. Now, the weird thing about iodized salt, and this happened in the 1920s when we identified this problem, is that there were two unexpected circumstances that came out of iodizing salt that I had no idea about, despite the fact that I knew all about this goiter thing. First, when the government started putting iodine in salt or like asking Morton's salt to do it, a recent study calculated that the average IQ of America went up by 3.5 points. And in the areas where it was a substantial, like there was already a substantial iodine deficiency, there was even greater increase than that. And in the affected areas, incomes rose by 11%. Because it turns out that the most common result of iodine deficiency isn't goiters, it's developmental disabilities. And iodine deficiency today still affects 2 billion people and is the most common cause of preventable developmental disorders. Now, 
The last unintended consequence of putting a bunch of iodine in people's salt is that people who had gotten used to not having any iodine suddenly got a lot of it, and that resulted in an overproduction of thyroxine because their their goiters were already so Mm. good at producing thyroxine from tiny amounts of iodine, Mm. and it killed them. Oh, geez. So a bunch of people died, particularly older people who had lived their whole lives with iodine deficiencies. So overall, iodizing salt was really good. A little bit bad. And the public health consequences were kind of surprising. And we didn't really know what we were doing. And it turned out good. And also, we should probably be putting iodine in everybody's salt everywhere. And we are in a lot of places. But there are still a lot of places where iodine deficiency is a real thing. Right. That's what I was going to ask. The rest of the world maybe doesn't do this as much? or The rest of the developed world does it. Okay. And there's lots of places where it isn't as much of a problem because crops grow in soil that has lots of iodine in it. Mm, You don't need lots. You Mm -hmm. need a very small amount. So that has some iodine in it, but it does affect a lot of people. Mm. And uh, in places where salt isn't used, things like soy sauce Mm -hmm. or Mm. fish sauce are the way that we get salt into our food. In the case of fish sauce, it already has iodine in it, so that's fine. But in the case of some other sources of salt, you don't get the iodine along with it that you would get from salt that was just made from the ocean. Because if you just make salt from the ocean, you get iodine. It's in there. But if you make salt industrially by only having sodium chloride, you don't get mm. the iodine. Okay. So is this deficiency something that popped up like with modern humans as we started growing a bunch of stuff and moving out to different parts of the world and where we're not necessarily, I don't know. I think that iodine deficiencies occurred all over the place throughout human history. Mm-hmm. It's, but like it depends on where you were and how you were getting your salt because mm-hmm. people were have always required sodium chloride. Like, Mm -hmm. we cannot survive without salt, which is why we like the taste of it. Where are they getting all this iodine from? I think they get it from roughly the same places where they get salt. So there's, like, potassium iodide and other iodine salts that are in seawater and there are in salt deposits. Stefan? So the most widely used oil in cooking Hmm. is vegetable oil. Whatever that means. Buy from the grocery store, you buy vegetable oil, but, Uh like... The only ingredient most of the time is soybean oil. Sometimes they mix it with other things. But I I think most of what we use it for is in like potato plants and like snack factories and stuff like that, fast food restaurants. It's not like the vegetable oil you buy. In any case, there's another way you can use this oil. A team of scientists in Australia has developed a process that heats the soybean oil and some nickel foil and it produces graphene sheets. (laughs) Which I guess you, it's kind of, it's a little bit of a stretch of our previous definition of cooking the oil, but, uh, you know, as a non-chemist, like, thinking about graphene, it, like, seems like this really hard thing to make. Like, graphite that's in your pencil is just, like, stacks of graphene. The, like, common thing is, like, if you just take tape and, like, stick it to the graphite and then peel it off, you have, like, really thin layers of what could end up, parts of that will be graphene. So it's fairly easy to make, but it's hard to make in like large sheets. And these people haven't figured out the large sheets parts of it, but this process is a lot cheaper because it just uses this really cheap oil and also doesn't require purified gases in in compressed conditions. So they have a quote here. It's the first time that the synthesis of graphene film has been demonstrated in an ambient air environment without compressed gases. But is it in ambient air or is it in the oil? They stick the oil and the, the nickel foil in a tube and they heat the tube for like 30 minutes 
to like 1500 degrees Fahrenheit. As it's heating, the oil like vaporizes and breaks down into all kinds of different things. And so the carbon molecules, I guess they dissolve into the nickel, which is weird as it gets hot. But then as it cools, it like comes back out of the nickel and crystallizes on the surface in a sheet. That's that's basically it. It's just a cheap way to make graphene. Out of food. Out of food stuff. <laughs> what do you do with graphene? Even if you don't have large sheets of it, you can like just take the flakes and like mix it into other materials and it pumps up their properties. So mm. like they use it for like running shoe soles sometimes mm. and it makes them more durable. Does it smell it, like food when they do it? Is it like popcorn ooh, in there? Ooh, that I don't know. <laughs> That's, That's a make what, or break question for me. I don't. <laughs> my guess is that you wouldn't want the gas in the tube to be cycled into the air that you're breathing. Yeah. It'd probably be really gross smelling because yeah. you're heating it up so much that it's vapor. I don't know. Uh, All right. So novel technique for the development of graphene using soybean oil or the entire United States got bumped up <laughs> by 3.5 IQ points because we put iodine in salt. Uh, I think I got I give mine a hank because this is referred to actual ingestion of um, items. <laughs> it is the most common cooking a... ingredient. <laughs> yeah. In Stefan's defense, my fact is not really about cooking. It is about an ingredient. Oh, and God. so is Stefan's. Oh, no. Yeah. Maybe I'll throw it in the trash. I'm going to put it in the compost bin. No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you look too sad now. Okay. Okay, you can have it. Okay. Oh, Did you do it? I'm going to throw mine in the trash. Oh, yes. my God. I want to do it. I just want to be original. You should. Yeah. Sure composting uh, her hank I'm composting book. because none of these facts are actually about cooking. They're wow. about cooking ingredients. Yours was about a dog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a dog who cooks food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did. Wait. This is a total tangent, but I found out about a thing called perpetual stew in like medieval inns. They would just have a pot going all the time and it's mm. like whatever came in that day, they'd throw it in the pot and just like keep refilling it. This disgusts me. <laughs> this whole idea of like perpetual stew. Like, I think that sounds great. Oh, mm -hmm. but apparently like just getting all that flavor mixing going on. Yeah. Over, oh. I guess if you're diluting it enough, yeah. then it shouldn't go bad. Also, if you're always keeping it hot, it's hot if it's yeah. always mm -hmm. boiling. I just it's... know there's one chunk of meat in there at the bottom that's been there for 10 months. Yeah, yeah, but if there was meat at the bottom, wouldn't it just like get hard and gross? Would it actually grow no, bacteria? No, keep boiling and yeah. Yeah, yeah, it would yeah. not get bacteria. I feel like I then... Think. Well, this, I mean, it's how it. sourdough works. Like every yeah. piece of sourdough has a little bit from like the original sourdough. Mm, that's true. However yeah. long ago. Yeah, now I'm also disgusted by sourdough. <laughs> And it's the same way with the lemonade in my fridge. I just, every time it starts running low, I just put a little more sugar water and more lemon juice in it. So I don't know how old the lemonade at the very bottom is. That's, that Different. one's, I that don't like. Gross. That's like, after it's been too long and I ha can't remember the last time I washed my water bottle, it's right. like, oh, yeah. it's time to wash this because I've yeah. like put my mouth all over it. It's been out. Yeah, yeah, you put your finger inside and it's like, that's slippery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what happens to your lemonade container? I don't know. I haven't checked. Don't. Just uh, let it be. Yeah. I think you should just keep drinking it. You'll be fine. Yeah, you're fine now. You're just developing your own gut yeah. bacteria and like Orin and Catherine <laughs> also have the same one. So you'll yeah. be like super powered by this <sighs> lemonade. My, my lemonade gut. Mm. <laughs> well, I think we should all lose a point. <laughs> we haven't lost one in a good while. Yeah, this I think this is like a, a like all around in the circle. It doesn't seem like anybody's blameless in nope. this. Yeah. This episode was a complete wash. This is a wild episode, yeah. <laughs> so negative one to everybody. And uh, that leaves us with a final score of Sari. 
with negative one point. Stupid. Uh, Stefan with zero. Oh, yeah. Sam, you and I have tied for the lead with a total of a massive one point. Delightful. Was Siri one point ahead of me? Are yeah. we tied again? Yeah, you're, I think you're, <laughs> you're negative to yourself. I did. Yes. <laughs> All right. You know, nothing matters. We're a speck of dust on a speck of dust in a speck of time. And now it's time to ask the science couch. At Bear Kewala asks, why do you have to add extra flour to bake at high altitude? Because there's so much... Less air? No air? No idea. I've got nothing. You're a chemist, Hank. (laughs) (laughs) Please. For clarity, I'm not a chemist. Okay, yeah. (laughs) I was once, decades ago, a chemistry student. (laughs) 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 Extra flour. I don't know. Like, I honestly don't. It's... I would think that you might need to add extra water, water? because there's mm-hmm. less water in the air at higher altitudes. More of it might evaporate, but I don't know why you need more flour. It's is connected it? to that. So cooking is chemistry, and chemistry depends on factors like thermodynamics. Uh-huh. And when you're at higher elevations, you have lower air pressure, and that affects a lot of things in the cooking process. Number one, water and other liquids evaporate faster and boil at lower temperatures Mm -hmm. because there's less air pushing down so then they can like vaporize more easily. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then whatever you're making, whatever you're cooking, loses moisture and so it could become dry. Sugar becomes more concentrated and things like that. Number two, leavening gases. So like this carbon dioxide produced by yeast uh, in breads and cakes expand more quickly because there's less mm. air push, air pressure pushing down on it. Mm, so they okay. like expand more. And so things rise easily, but they can also rise too much. Mm. And in food science, they call each little like gas pocket in bread a cell, which okay. was extremely oh. confusing for me as a biologist <laughs> to read this paper and be like, and the cell walls burst. And it's like, there, there are no cell walls <laughs> in bread. This is not a plant. That's jokes for other biologists out there. <laughs> oh, oh, I didn't even realize it was a joke. Yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the thing about jokes you don't get, Sam. Okay. Yeah. Uh, me and every music joke. So you want, when you're baking at high altitudes, you want to do things that will help with the integrity of the cells of your bread. And so you can lower the amounts of sugar and fat, which weaken the structure of it. You can lower the amount of leavening agents like yeast, which can cause bursting. And then you can add more of things like eggs and sometimes flour, which strengthen something that you're baking. And I think with flour specifically, I, I was reading like some high altitude baking stuff. And they usually recommend adding more water before adding more flour because things get really dry. Mm -hmm. But I'm guessing if you add more flour, you want to add it with more water because that's how gluten forms. So flour contains proteins, glutenin and gliadin. And those two, like when water is mixed in, form gluten, which is like the stretchy, stringy. I don't know. Some people are allergic to it, but it's like how bread gets a lot of its structure and like becomes like the gummy bread dough that you know. Mm-hmm. And so adding more flour will add more of that structure, presumably, mm-hmm. like adding more gluten formation. And then you have more Proper integrity. Bread. Yeah, integrity in your bread. integrity. <laughs> it's all about engineering. Yeah. If you want to ask the Science Couch question, you can follow us on Twitter at SciShowTangents, where we will tweet out the topics for upcoming episodes. Thank you at 
A. Happily, at M. Henson 98, and everybody else who tweeted us your questions this week. If you like this show and you want to help us out, it's really easy to do that. You can leave us a review wherever you listen. You can also tweet about your favorite moment from this episode. And finally, if you want to show your love for tangents, you can just tell people about us. Thanks for joining us. I've been Hank Green. I've been Sari Riley. I've been Stefan Chin. And I've been Sam Schultz. SciShow Tangents is a co-production of Complexly and WNYC Studios. It's created by all of us and produced by Sam Schultz and Caitlin Hoffmeister. Our sound design is by Joseph Tuna Medish. Our social media organizer is Victoria Bongiorno, and we couldn't make any of this stuff without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you, and remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lighted. But one more thing. Some cured meats, like salami, also have bacteria in them to ferment stuff and add flavor. In one study from 2014, scientists made a sausage called Fouette with a bacteria strain isolated from human baby poop to try Whoa. and make it a probiotic food. And article titles called it Pooperoni. <laughs> <laughs>